Well, as James also mentioned, it is the Lenten season. Some of y'all are familiar with that. Some of you may not be so familiar, and I, I did a little um, introduction to that on Wednesday night, on Ash Wednesday. Some of you may have gone to some services for Ash Wednesday. Um, but uh, for the Lenten season, we're going to start a new sermon series. But what I want to start with today is thinking about famous last words. You ever gone through and looked maybe on Google, say, famous last words, and um, you can hear all these different people from the past and what were their last words before they passed away. And it's pretty interesting to hear all the different things that people say right before they pass away. Have you ever heard someone's last words? Probably out of everybody here, you have. Maybe it was a loved one. And if you have heard someone's last words, you don't forget those, do you? They have a lot of meaning for you. They stay with you. They say something about that person. They say something about that person's life. They say something about where that person was in their life when they said those final words. Have you ever thought about what your last words will be? Have you ever thought about that? Because we will have some last words that someone will remember. When Bible scholar N.T. Wright was asked, what he thought his last, what he would say as his last words to his children, he said this. He said, look at Jesus. And he explained why. He said, the person who walks out of the pages of the Gospels to meet us is just central and irreplaceable. He is always a surprise. We never have Jesus in our pockets. He is always coming at us from different angles. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, Look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but part of the drama that has him as the central character. That's pretty good last words to give to your kids, isn't it? And N.T. Wright is a, a, an amazing guy, very much a scholar. Well, we're going to start a new series as we start into this Lenten season. And I don't know how many of y'all know this. For some of you, you've practiced this maybe in your faith background in the past. You're familiar with it. Some of you may not be familiar. But basically, from Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, last Wednesday, till Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, there's a 40-day period. Well, actually, it's 46 days, but they don't count Sundays. I've never quite understood that, but that's how they do it. But it's that period. And that period is supposed to be um, uh, practiced. It's been practiced for years by many followers of Jesus. And some people say, oh, well, that's a Catholic thing. No, way before we started calling the church Catholic or Protestant, people practiced this Lenten schedule as part of worship and getting prepared for Easter Sunday. And it was established to help people get ready for that. And it helps us get a clearer picture of who we are as a person. It helps give us a clearer picture of who Jesus is. And it also helps give us a clearer picture of how Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection has effect on me in this life right now and also in the afterlife. And so that's what Lynn is, a time of reflection. And a lot of people think about giving up something. You give up, well, I'm going to give up chocolate or I'm going to give up coffee or I'm going to give up my favorite TV show or I'm going to give up this or that. But part of that is to say, during that period, instead of doing that, I'm going to use that time to reflect on Christ and why he came to this earth and how wonderful that grace is that he would forgive me and the whole world's sins. And so that's what the Lenten season is all about. So what I want to do in this series is look at the seven last words that we believe Jesus said that we find in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Jesus is in recording the gospel saying certain things on the cross. And we're going to take not all seven of those, but several of those in the next few weeks. And we're going to look at those and try to help us understand where Jesus was and why Jesus had to go to that cross. Because I think for a lot of folks in our culture, they find it a hard time believing. Why did Jesus have to go through that suffering? Why did Jesus have to be so brutally killed in order to pay for our sins? Are our sins really that bad? As I talked about yet last week in my sermon, apparently God says, absolutely, our sins are bad enough that it needed to have Jesus' death and resurrection to restore us to God. So we're going to look at a passage in Luke this morning, chapter 23, verses 32 through 34, and I believe those are going to be up on the screen. There we are. Thank you. And let's listen to what um, the gospel writer Luke says. He said, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now, this may not be unfamiliar to you. you. You know that there were things that Jesus said on the cross. But we want to talk about that particular phrase right there that Jesus said. This is, seems to be the first from the Gospels that we know that Jesus said. And you think about, why would that be the first thing Jesus said while he was on the cross? And so I want us to unpack that a little bit. A little bit. These first recorded words from Jesus on the cross, they're powerful. They say something about who Jesus is and the situation that Jesus was in when he said them. And if you know, Jesus has been arrested on Thursday night. On Thursday night, Jesus got together with his disciples to have the celebration of the Passover meal together. And Jesus instituted a new a covenant in his blood, he talked about. And as they're listening to this and watching what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying, they're not really clear. They know he's made this prediction about his death, about going to the cross, and about resurrecting, but they haven't quite understood what he was talking about yet. So Jesus not only had this very emotional Passover celebration with his disciples where he washed each of their feet and told them that this is what the servant does. And this is what God has called us to be, a servant. And he says, if you really want to be my disciples, this is what you must do. You must learn to be a servant to all. And this is a very emotional celebration with his disciples. And then they go out to the Garden of Eden and, and to pray. And as we know, Jesus is, is arrested there. And then we know he's taken from there. And he goes to all kind of different trials during that night. And he's tried and convicted of blasphemy by the religious Jewish leaders on that night. He was taken then from the, to, uh, from the religious leaders of the, Jew, the Jews. They take him to Pilate, uh, the Roman authority. And Pilate says, I find no reason uh, to crucify Jesus. Because the Jews know they can't do that under their own law. It has to be the Romans. But Pilate interviews him, questions him. And he says, this man has not done nothing to deserve death. So he sends him to Herod, as we know. And then Herod asks him some questions and sends him back to Pilate. And eventually, Pilate wants to free Jesus. He says, this guy, there's no reason to kill this guy. I don't understand it. I don't understand your crazy Jewish laws and all that. I don't understand that. But this man has done nothing. And even his wife warned him. In a dream, God said, don't do anything to this man. But Pilate is eventually... What, you know, he caves in under the pressure of the people. 
And eventually Pilate tries to free him, but and Jesus hears the crowd say, No, we don't want Jesus to be released, we want Barabbas. And Barabbas, as we know, was a, an insurrectionist. He had led some rebellion and had killed a Roman soldier. But in the midst of all this, Jesus has been abandoned by all his disciples. That night in the garden, they all ran away, scared, like we might be next. So they all abandoned Jesus. And Jesus was then brutally beaten by the Romans, almost to death. And then he had to carry his own cross. And then as he gets to that place, as Luke tells us, called Golgotha, he was, he was nailed to the cross there and left in front of the whole public, half-naked to die an agonizing death in front of everyone and between two criminals, as Luke tells us. And so the first words he spoke as he hung there, after all that, think of that. You've had this emotional Passover meal. You've had all of the 12 disciples abandon you. You've had the people that you thought were on your side now say, no, we don't want Jesus, we want Barabbas. Well, what should I do with him? Crucify him. Jesus is trying to mentally and emotionally absorb how so many people have turned against him. And he's having all that. Then he's been brutally beaten. He knows the justice system is completely not just because of what has just happened. And he's hanging on the cross. And the first things he can think of to say is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I go, what? What do you mean they don't know what they're doing? It seems like they know exactly what they're doing. The religious leaders have been plotting for months to kill Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, we hear little snips where it says, and then they went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. They knew exactly what they were doing, Jesus. What do you mean they didn't know what they were doing? The disciples, not just Peter, had said, we will never betray you. We'll never betray you, Jesus. I know we focus on Peter a lot, but all of them said, yeah, we'll never do that. And they all ran when it got rough. The crowds loved you, Jesus, when you taught and healed them, healed your relatives. But then you wouldn't use your power to lead a rebellion against Rome and put Israel back on top again. So they had no use for you. What do you mean they don't know what they're doing, Jesus? The Romans were very experienced in crucifixion, Jesus. This wasn't something new to them. They knew exactly how to torture a man. They knew exactly how to put somebody on a cross and use him as an example. Anybody else want to start a rebellion? This is what happens to rebels. We nail them to a cross so that everybody in the culture, in the community can see this is what we do to rebels. What do you mean they don't know what they're doing, Jesus? And think about those around Jesus that day at the cross that needed forgiveness, though. How about the two criminals on both sides? Jesus is being crucified as a common criminal. Roman soldiers responsible for driving nails into the flesh of human beings and making them, like I said, as an example on these crosses. Doing this to Jesus when they knew he was innocent. He had done nothing. Religious leaders who had plotted and perverted justice in order to get rid of Jesus. And they continued, even at the, they continued even at the cross to mock Jesus. If you're really the Son of God, why don't you save yourself? Come down off of that cross if you really are. You could save others. Why can't you save yourself, Jesus? And people who continued to pile on Jesus even in his death. Who didn't know what they were doing, Jesus? You ever thought about that? But in reality, Jesus seems to realize that no one involved in all of this 
whether it was the criminals on either side of him, the religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, even his own disciples, nobody understood the magnitude of what they were doing. Because if they really believed, if they really knew he was God himself in the flesh, then why in the world would you put him on a cross? So they really didn't know what they were doing. It points us again to the harsh reality of our sin and what it can do in our lives and in the lives of others and how desperately we really need that forgiveness, not only from others, but more importantly, from God himself. We don't need another military or political leader to kill our enemies or fix our problems, but as we listen to our culture today, you sure think that's where we're headed, don't we? Oh, this guy's going to fix everything, or this military leader, or this president, or this candidate. Everybody's going to fix everything, and we forget that's not what we need, another political leader. We need a Savior to forgive our sins. Jesus knew that then, and Jesus knows that now. So why do we need to really think about those words of Jesus? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It is why Jesus was on that cross in the first place. To bring us forgiveness. It was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. The Old Testament brought the law. The law was very important. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill it. But the law could not be obeyed. We as humans cannot obey the law. The law is important. It points us to where the boundaries are. And we need those boundaries. But we all ultimately end up breaking those laws, don't we? And we couldn't. We couldn't, you know, be restored to a holy, just God when we were breaking his laws and his covenant. And it was also a fulfillment of the New Testament promises, Jesus coming to die on the cross. It is why Jesus came into the world to take away the sins of the world. When John the Baptist first saw him, he says, here comes the lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. At Christmas time, when we think about this baby that's going to be born has come to take away the sins of his people. That is why Jesus came into the world. But do we really realize we need God's forgiveness? And I mentioned this last week, but I am absolutely convinced in our culture there's so many people who are not convinced they need forgiving. Or they think they can somehow get it on their own by their own works somehow. Do we realize that Jesus' perfect sacrifice and payment for our sin on that cross was the only way, the only way we can be restored to God and be cleansed and made whole? That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And what he meant by me is my life, my death, and my resurrection. We sometimes seem to think that forgiveness happens in this most ideal circumstances. This is how we think forgiveness should be. The person who did wrong should confess that wrong, confess their sin, admit their wrong motives, and ask and beg for forgiveness and agrees to do anything to make it right, then we're willing to forgive someone, right? If someone will do that. But a lot of us sitting here today said, yeah, that's right, Craig. That's how forgiveness is supposed to come about. And the person that I'm mad at right now, the person that I'm holding a grudge against right now, is the person that has not come to me and asked for forgiveness. That person has not confessed their wrong. They have not confessed or admitted their motives. They have not asked for forgiveness, so I'm not going to give it to them until they do that. And then I think about Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It doesn't happen like that. Paul says, while we were still sinners, 
Not while we were confessing our sins, but while we were still in the process, in the act of sinning against God and His law and His covenant. Paul says that's when Christ died for us, while we were still sinners. Paul understands that. He was in the midst of being a sinner when God called him. Think about the scene that day. After brutal torture, Jesus was able to say, with all that physical pain and all that emotional pain that he's going through, knowing, where are my disciples? Where are all these people? Where are all these crowds that loved me just a few months ago? Where are they now? And Jesus was able to say in that time and place, forgive them. Knowing that the 12 guys that you had poured yourself into for the last three years, who said they would never abandon you, left you. But yet Jesus can say even to them, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. And I continue in my life in my own selfish, consumeristic, look at me, it's all about me and what I want and what I need. I continue in that attitude. And even in the midst of that, Jesus says to me, Craig, I forgive you because you really don't understand what you're doing. When Peter asked Jesus one day, how many times should I forgive my brother, Jesus? Seven? And I bet Peter thought that was really good. Seven times. He's probably thinking, Jesus didn't go, oh, no, not necessary. Because he probably, I don't know where he got, I know seven was the perfect number in the Jewish, but I like to think of it like this. He thought three times is really good, right? Forgiving somebody three times. Then you add three more times and one more, Jesus is certainly going to, Say, way to go, Peter. You're on the right track. But what did Jesus say? No, he says, not seven times, but what? Seventy times seven, Peter. That's how many times you're to forgive your brother. Now, if you're a mathematician or good with that, I'm not. That's why I'm a preacher. You would be 490, right? Is that what Jesus is saying, that we're supposed to forgive our brother 490 times? Jesus on the cross is proving exactly what he meant by that. If you keep hurting someone over and over again, you really don't get it. You really don't understand. And you need forgiveness. And then Jesus, right after that, told the parable, right on the heels of talking to Peter about this, about an unforgiving servant. And this servant owed a, a lot of money to his master. And the master started adding up and go, man, this guy owes me like a million dollars. He goes, throw that guy in jail till he can pay it. And the guy goes, oh, please don't do that. Please, he gets down on his knees. He does all that forgiveness stuff. Oh, please, I'll do anything. Please just let me pay it back. And the guy realizes this guy can work his whole life and he will never pay back the million dollars. So he forgives him and tells him, no, it's all forgiven. Now go. And the guy goes out and what's the first thing he does? He finds a fellow servant owes him a few bucks and he starts choking him and says, I want my money back. And he goes, well, please, I'll do whatever. He goes, no. And he threw him into prison. And the master heard about this and he goes, what in the world? After the, the grace you experience, why in the world would you treat someone else like that? And he says, throw him into prison until he can pay it all back. And Jesus says, if you don't forgive your brother or sister like that, then that's the way my father will treat you. But yet on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That man didn't really understand what he was doing. We really don't understand how our sin affects our relationships, do we? We know how someone else affects our relationship when we need to forgive them, but we really don't understand how our sin and what our sin does to a holy and just God. Jesus did not just forgive and forget. Have you heard somebody say that before? You need to forgive and forget. Where is that in the Bible? 
Well, it says that he will move our sins as far as the east is from the west. It says Jesus that God will remember our sins no more. But Jesus really, if you think about it, Jesus does not forget our sin. Because it makes that forgiveness and grace all that more amazing that he does remember our sin. Think about it. If he just forgot about it like some memory loss. Y'all remember the movie Men in Black? You remember that? And they took that little thing out and they would go, and it would just make somebody completely forget their memory. Is that what God did? He just completely forgot about it? No, he knows what we did. And this is what makes it so amazing. He knows what we did. He knows all the things that we did to hurt others, to hurt ourselves, to hurt him. He knows all of that. He doesn't forget about it. He forgives it. There's a huge difference. But he doesn't let it come between our relationship. And the same is true in our own lives. We forgive because we have not forgotten What you did to me, what I did to you, it hurt you, it harmed you, it has caused separation between us, but it needs to be forgiven, not just forgotten about like it never happened. No, it did happen, and forgiveness needs that, needs to give that to people. It needs to be forgiven with the full memory of the hurt in order to become transforming in the relationship, whether it's with us or with God. And Jesus says, I will give you the Holy Spirit To help you do that. Because I know you think, I can't do that. You have no idea. And some of you sitting here today are probably saying, Craig, you have no idea what this person did to me. If you knew, you wouldn't forgive them either. I don't have to know. I just know that our Savior and our Lord who forgave us said, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. So maybe there's somebody you need to forgive today. Maybe somebody that you need to say, Father, help me to forgive this person. Because they really didn't know what they were doing. And in your mind you're going, but they did know what they were doing. They did that on purpose to hurt me. I know they did it. And Jesus still stands back and says, forgive you. Because you didn't know what you were doing. It's hard, isn't it? Well, today I want to close with a story. Several years ago, during South Africa's really uh, tumultuous things that were going on with apartheid and all of that. A lot of y'all remember that. They had a, what was called South Af- Africa's Truth and Reco- Reconciliation Commission. And it was to, to bring about forgiveness in South Africa with all this that was going on. And Philip Yancey talks about one story in particular and what was going on there. And he says, the rules were simple. If a white policeman or army officer voluntarily faced his accusers, confessed his crime, and fully acknowledged his guilt, he could not be tried and punished for that crime. That doesn't sound like a good idea. And a lot of the hardliners grumbled about the obvious injustice of letting someone who did some of these horrible atrocities go free like that. But Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Desmond Tutu insisted that the country needed healing and forgiveness even more than it needed that particular kind of justice. Because they had seen that justice go on. You kill one of ours, we're going to kill two of yours. You kill two of ours, we're going to kill four of yours. It just went on and on and on. So at one particular hearing, a policeman came forward and wanted to admit his crimes. His name was Van de Brook, And he recounted an incident when he and other officers shot an 18-year-old boy and then literally burned the body and turned it like a fire on fire like a piece of barbecue meat to destroy the evidence. Eight years later, Van de Brook, the same police officer, returned to the same house 
and took this boy's father that he had shot eight years earlier and burned. And the wife was forced to watch as the, as the policeman bound her husband, put him on a wood pile, and poured gasoline all over his body and ignited it. The courtroom grew hushed as the elderly woman who had lost her first son and her husband was given a chance to respond as this man admitted his guilt. What do you want from Mr. Vanderbrook? the judge asked. She said she wanted Vanderbrook to go to the place where they burned her husband's body and gather up the dust so that she could give him a decent burial. With his head down, the policeman nodded in agreement that he would do that. Then she, a follower of Jesus, added a further request. Mr. Vanderbrook took all my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with him so that I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him as well. I would like to embrace him so he can know that my forgiveness today is real. Spontaneously, someone in the courtroom beginning and others began singing Amazing Grace as the elderly woman made her way to the witness stand, but Mr. Vanderbrook had passed out from being overwhelmed from what she said. That's forgiveness, isn't it? When I think about they didn't know what they were doing, when a man shot your son and burned him in front of you and then came back eight years later and burned your husband in front of you, how can you say, I forgive you, you didn't really know what you were doing and I want to be a mother to you? That's somebody that understands forgiveness, isn't it? That's somebody that understands what Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And so today as we, we hear that and we read and hear Jesus' words from the cross, we realize that Jesus has forgiven us all because we really don't know what we're doing. But once we understand that grace and forgiveness like this woman, we've got to be ready to extend that to other people. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. So this morning, maybe there's someone that needs to embrace that forgiveness today in your own life. Embrace that forgiveness today and allow it to transform your life so you can begin the journey of forgiveness to other people. And it's not an easy journey. I, I hope you didn't hear me say that today. It's a very difficult journey, but it can be done. And God will empower us through His Holy Spirit if we will allow Him. So we're going to stand at this time, and I know James is going to uh, lead us in a song. And if you have a decision to make and you want to embrace that forgiveness,